Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Jesus went about, as Peter would say at a certain point, Jesus went about doing good, and he added in healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And, and I hope that as we study the life of Jesus, that that's going to inspire us in our time to be like Jesus in that sense, to go about because we are his servants and to seek to do the kinds of things he did. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian begins his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his series with his teaching on Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 15 with a message titled, The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's Pastor Brian. We're launching, that's a good word, we're launching into our study today in the Gospel of Mark. And the reason why I feel it's important that we've landed here on a gospel is because I think that at this time in history and in the life of the church, I really think it is essential that we have a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and what it meant and means to be his followers. You know, there is so much confusion about Jesus and about the word of God. Of course, that confusion exists out there in the culture in general. But you know, there's a ton of confusion in the church as well. And so there's, there's nothing that's going to help clear the confusion up any better than to just go right back to the source, to go right back to the, to the very text itself. And we are going to just look at this gospel and we're going to Again, we're going to just make sure we know who Jesus is, we know what he did, and what it means to be his follower in our day and age. Now, but we're doing specifically the Gospel of Mark. Why Mark versus the other uh, three possibilities? Of course, we have Matthew, we have Luke, and we have John. And they're all, of course, similar. And the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are, are called the synoptic Gospels. And the reason they're called the synoptics is because that word means to kind of see through the same lens. So, you know, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in one sense, you kind of feel like, wow, this is really similar. But, you know, the, the longer you read those and the more you look closely at them, you realize that, yeah, there certainly are similarities, but there are some real differences as well. And then John, in, in many ways, is entirely different. But each of the gospel writers had a purpose. And it seems that as you look at Mark, Mark really, more than anything, wanted to focus in on what Jesus did. And, and that's why I think Mark is a good gospel for us to go through. We, we want to look at, um, of course, there's the, you know, the teachings of Jesus. Some of them are in here. Uh, not like you would find in Matthew or Luke, but, but we really want to focus in on what Jesus did. I like the way J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool from a long time ago, I like the way he described Mark as compared to the other gospel accounts. He said this, he said, Mark is in some respects unlike the other three gospels. It tells us nothing about the birth and early life of our Lord Jesus Christ it contains comparatively few of his sayings and discourses. 
Of all the four inspired histories of our Lord's earthly ministry, this is by far the shortest. It is a gospel singularly full of precious facts about the Lord Jesus, narrated in a simple, terse, pithy, and condensed style. If it tells us few of our Lord's sayings, it is eminently rich in its catalog of his doings. I like that. So it's eminently rich in, in the catalog of, of his doings. So Mark doesn't tell us as, you know, as much about the sayings of Jesus as the others do, but he focuses in on what Jesus did. A more current voice, Tim Keller, he put it like this. Jesus is seen as a man of action, moving quickly and decisively from event to event. In Mark, we mainly see Jesus doing. And so that's what has kind of pushed me toward Mark. Because Jesus went about, as Peter would say at a certain point, Jesus went about doing good. And he added, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And, and I hope that as we study the life of Jesus, that that's going to inspire us in our time to be like Jesus in that sense, to go about because we are his servants and, and to seek to do the kinds of things he did. So that's our objective here in Steady Mark. But today I want to look at three things we're going to look at the author and the audience. And then I want to look at the 15 verses that we read. I'm just going to give kind of a light exposition of those 15 verses. And then the final thing that we want to look at is the message that Mark is communicating in these opening verses. These 15 verses are kind of like the introduction to the gospel. So we want to look at the message of the introduction, which is basically the gospel, the Messiah, and the kingdom. So first of all, let's talk just for a moment about the author. The author is Mark, as we see, but we need to understand that this is the person known as John Mark. So his Hebrew name is John, his Roman name is Mark, and any of you that went through the Acts study with us, you, you're familiar with that, if you remember, because John Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. He was the traveling companion of Barnabas. He was the one who went out with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. He left prematurely. Later, when they were going to go out for the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Paul said, we're not taking him. They got in a disagreement, and maybe you remember the story there. They actually separated ways over this young guy, John Mark. But he was a companion of Paul, and he was also a companion of Peter. And Peter refers to Mark in uh, the final chapter of his first epistle, he refers to Mark as his son in the faith. So that's a little bit about uh, John Mark. Mark is almost certainly the young man who flees naked at the arrest of Jesus. Now, in this gospel, it's the only gospel that records this. In chapter 14, I think it's verse 51, uh, there's a story of Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and there's a young man who's He's there. He's wearing just a linen cloth. The soldiers try to grab him. He flees and leaves behind the linen cloth, and it says that he fled naked. And most people believe that this is a personal reference that Mark is giving to himself. So think about that. So he's a young 
boy, you know, maybe, I don't know, in his teens, early teens or something, but he's there in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested. So we see that he's got this connection to Barnabas as his nephew, his connection to Paul in ministry, obviously this close connection to Peter who refers to him as his son in the faith. Now, Mark is said by a man named Papias. Papias was a church leader, kind of post-apostolic. His, his life overlapped with the Apostle John. It said that he was associated with the Apostle John. But Papias said about Mark that he was Peter's interpreter, meaning Mark's gospel is actually Peter's account of the ministry of Jesus. So, I mean, you would kind of wonder, wouldn't you, well, why didn't Peter write a gospel? Matthew wrote a gospel. John wrote a gospel. Well, you know, why wouldn't Peter write a gospel? We know Peter could write because he wrote two letters. And you would think because he was so obviously, you know, deeply involved in the life and ministry of Jesus, why wouldn't he do it? Well, it seems that he actually did do it, but he did it through Mark. So Mark is the interpreter of Peter. So I think we can understand that Mark's gospel is, is probably really Peter's gospel. There's, proportionately, there's, there's more references to Peter in Mark than in the other gospels. And so that probably is the case. Now, just a quick word on the audience. All of the different gospel writers had a different target audience that they wrote to. Of course, it wasn't exclusively that. It was broad enough to appeal beyond their target audience. But if you look at Matthew's gospel, it's clear that Matthew is writing to Jews. He quotes the Old Testament more frequently than anyone. He makes sure that they understand that things that are happening in the life of Jesus are, are connected back to Old Testament prophecies. And you know, for Matthew, everything is very much set in a Jewish context. That was his target audience. Luke seems to have targeted more of a Greek audience. Luke was a Greek, and he was a physician. So he presents Jesus kind of as the, the perfect man. And uh, Greek, the Greeks were interested in the, the perfect man. John, we know that John's focus and emphasis was to, to make sure we understood that Jesus was divine, that he was the word who was in the beginning with God and was God, who became flesh. Mark, it seems like Mark, and maybe Peter, you know, through Mark, was targeting, just generally speaking, a Gentile audience. And the reason why we know that that was the case is because Mark recognizes that the people he's writing to don't know much about Jewish customs and traditions. So he always explains them. He writes them, he tells what was happening, but then he kind of gives an explanation so the non-Jewish writer would understand the background to the comments that he made. So Mark's gospel was, you know, generally to a Gentile audience. So like I said, I mean, these are, you know, probably their target audiences, but obviously everything extends out and becomes much broader. And so whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we today are all going to, you know, benefit from their writing. So that's the background with Mark and the audience. But now let's actually just look at the 15 verses. Let's just quickly walk through the text 
And so verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now Mark is similar right here to John because John's gospel is in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God, right? Now, especially at that time, anybody who read in the beginning would immediately think of another place where you would read in the beginning, and that's the very first words of the Bible itself. Way back in the book of Genesis, that's how it began, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So when John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was gone, he is wanting people to understand that what I'm about to tell you right now is connected all the way back to the very beginning. Now, Mark is essentially doing the same thing. Mark wants everybody to understand that this gospel is related all the way back to the beginning of time. This gospel is the very thing that the God who created everything in the beginning, it's the thing that he promised to send, well, the Savior himself, he promised to send the Savior into the world. So he starts with the word, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. So Mark wants his readers to know that Jesus comes in fulfillment of the prophets. Now again, God, it's important for us to remember this too. Jesus didn't just appear in history as, well, you know, here's this person, Jesus. Yeah, he was born in this place. And, you know, he said he was the son of God. So we thought that he probably was. And, and, and then we worshiped him. That's not how it happened. Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy. There were many, many, many prophecies that were already written down before Jesus was ever born. Hundreds of years before he ever came telling about his coming, the time he would come into the world, the circumstances under which he would come, the place of his birth, things about his family, all different kinds of things were written about him. And Mark wants us to understand that this coming of Jesus was a fulfillment of those prophecies. So he quotes from two prophets here. He quotes from Malachi and from Isaiah. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi 3.1 in our Bibles. And then Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then verse four, John came baptizing in the wilderness. So Mark takes us first to John the Baptist who was prophesied to come as the forerunner of the Savior. So there's a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what's he crying? Prepare the way of the Lord. The prophet said that that would happen. Now think about this. 400 years. That is such a long time. There's been 400 years of basically dead silence from heaven. There's been no prophetic voice. Malachi was the last prophet to speak. And since then, Although the people had the scriptures, there was, there, was no, there was no prophetic voice. After literally centuries of God consistently raising up and sending prophets to the nation, suddenly there's a silence, and that silence is not ended for 400 years, and it is finally broken with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist. 
So, man, just, you know, think about that. That such a long period of time. And the people during that time, during that what we call the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that 400 years, things for the Jews went from bad to worse. They came back from the Babylonian captivity. That's the end, at the end of the Old Testament. That's what's happening. They come back from the Babylonian captivity, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Zechariah. They rebuild the temple. They reestablish, you know, Jewish life after the captivity. But then things just go from bad to worse. The Greek empire comes to power and they just trample Israel, Jerusalem. And they, they come under one oppressive regime after another. The priesthood becomes more and more corrupt. And so by the time you get to where we are in the account here, things are so dark. And the people are so burdened with the oppression of Rome. And they're so desperately longing for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And I would imagine that many of them thought that, you know, maybe it's never going to happen. But then suddenly there's a voice that begins to cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so John the Baptist comes onto the scene and he is preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey, and he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark just gives us a, a brief overview of the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, notice how he describes John. He comes out of the wilderness he lives on a diet of locust, which people do eat locust even still today, and wild honey. And um, he's dressed in this, this garment, this, this camel's hair garment. And, you know, he's a wild wilderness type of a guy. He's very similar in description to the ancient prophet Elijah. And the interesting thing is at the very end of Malachi's prophecy, Malachi's prophecy says this, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the coming of the great and the awesome day of the Lord. And so John, although he's not Elijah, he's actually a type of Elijah. And he comes and he's calling the people to be baptized for the a baptism of repentance for the remission of their sins. Now, again, this was unusual. Jews were not baptized uh, for the remission of sins. Jews didn't see themselves as needing that sort of thing. They, they would wash themselves to cleanse themselves in a you know, purification type of a rite. But the fact that they would be called to be immersed, which would show repentance for the forgiveness of sins, that was something Gentiles would do, but the Jews would not think of themselves as needing to do this. But the multitudes of people who are desperate, for God to do something, they're flocking out to John. But we know from the other gospels that the religious leaders, they're coming out to John and they're asking him, who gave you the right to do this? Who do you think you are? We didn't commission you. We didn't tell you you could do this. Who are you? Are you the Messiah? John said, no, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Messiah. 
And so that's what's happening here now. John says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he, this one that's coming, the one that I'm preparing the way for, uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days, verse 9, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so the baptism of Jesus. Now, John, you know, when you put all of the other gospels together, you learn all of these additional things. John the Baptist, he knows he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He doesn't know who the Messiah is. But God had told him this. The one upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John, as he's there baptizing, Jesus comes to be baptized. Now, Jesus and John were distant relatives. But sometimes I've heard preachers give the impression that, you know, because we use the term they were cousins, cousins is probably too close of a connection. They were further distance than that. Some people give the impression that they hung out together. They kind of knew what was going on. Jesus comes down to the river and John says, hey, wow, it's my cousin, you know, come on down to get baptized. That's great. Just like the plan, <laughs> just, just like it was planned. No, that's not the way it happened. They probably didn't have really any association with each other. They were geographically at a distance from one another. The parents of John the Baptist were very old. John the Baptist went out into the wilderness as a young person, we're told. Jesus lived in Nazareth. He pretty much stayed there. John doesn't know who the Messiah is, but here's what happens. Jesus comes, he's baptized, and the Spirit descended upon him. It wasn't just let me just say this. It wasn't a dove that descended upon Jesus. The Spirit, somehow John could see that the Spirit was descending upon Jesus like a dove, like a dove would, would alight on something. You know, we, we, I just want to say that because sometimes we get superstitious about like the symbol of a dove. You know, years ago, we, we, for a long time, we had a dove as a, as a symbol here. And then when we didn't have the dove, people thought, oh, no. The Holy Spirit's left the church. They took the dove down, and uh, that's a sign right there. No, there was never a dove in the first place. It was, it was the Spirit descending like a dove would descend. So John sees this somehow. John's able to see this, and then John knows this is the one. This is the Messiah. And so Jesus is baptized by John, and he is at that time also baptized with the Spirit, and then the heavenly voice speaks. Verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. Now, again, Mark is being very, very brief, obviously intentionally, because he, he wants to get to the things that he wants to emphasize so these things that Matthew and later Luke went into great detail about, Mark doesn't go into great detail. And now let's join Pastor Brian and Cheryl in the studio as they share about this month's resource. So Brian, your 
friend has written another great book, and he's your friend, and he's also kind of your little bit of a fan. Let's just be honest. I am a big fan of Ray Ortland, and he has written this fantastic little book on the gospel. But really, the gist of it is creating gospel culture within your church. So, gospel culture is really, it's a culture of love, it's a culture of grace, it's a culture where anybody can come in and know that they're going to be given an opportunity to hear the good news of of God's love, and people are going to be patient and not judgmental and give God time to work. So that's pretty much what he lays in out other in words, this great little book. People are going to be like Jesus. People are going to be like Jesus. As they study Jesus. Yeah. So I highly recommend this little book by my friend Ray Ortland called The Gospel. Again, this month's resource is a book titled The Gospel by Ray Ortland. You can order the book The Gospel by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it, then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Gospel by Ray Ortland to help you develop a biblical perspective of gospel culture. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.